Our second reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The word of the Lord. Just uh, last week, we were in Genesis 1 and 2, and if you had read on through Genesis 3, 4, 5, on to Genesis chapter 11, the story of humanity goes in a downward spiral from Genesis 3 onward and almost hits a complete cul-de-sac of barrenness and hopelessness by the end of Genesis 11. The family line of Seth, the chosen one, has gone down to the last family, Terah, and his sons, and yet they have gone into idolatry. And in the midst of that, God calls a 70-plus-year-old man and his barren wife. We read in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 12, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. Now, to us, that's actually not that hard of a thing to think about doing. When I was a junior or senior in high school, I was already determined to get as far away from the town that I grew up in as possible. It wasn't that I hated the town I grew up in. I just wanted to make something of myself. And so even as I started looking at universities, I was looking at, at Michigan and Colorado and Africa, anywhere. <laughs> I ended up 100 miles away in Charlottesville, and now I'm back in my hometown. But the idea of going away from where you were born is not unusual. Part of our American dream is that you can make anything of yourself. It doesn't matter who your parents are, where you grew up, what your ethnicity is, you can become President of the United States. And so we have this vision that you can go places in America. And on top of that, each of us represents a, a view of calling that is very individualistic. I think of my calling distinct from my family of origin. I am called to something, right? And on top of that, we take for granted mobility, whether it's cars or plane, we can get anywhere we want. And we take for granted the global nature of the world we live in. So the idea of going from your country, kindred, and father's house doesn't sound that daunting to us. But to Abraham, to Abram, it was completely inconceivable. That ancient world was a static society. People did not move. You did not leave your father's household. Your entire worldview and self-understanding, who I am, why I'm here, what my life is going to be about, was fixed. It was fixed by your kinship and the place in which you were born. Everything stayed the same. It was world-shattering to be called out. Theologian Miroslav Volf talks about Abraham's courage when he says, the courage to break his cultural and familial ties and abandon the gods of his ancestors out of allegiance to a god of all families and all cultures was revolutionary. It was inconceivable 
and unheard of. And on top of that, God doesn't tell him where he's going to go. He says at the end of of verse 1, go to the land I will show you. What would your next question be? Which land, God? Are you sure? Am I going to like the city? What's the weather like in the winter? What kind of schools do they have there? To the land I will show you. You're going to go blindly, and you're going to trust me completely. Don't ask questions. See, God wants to cultivate in Abraham a relationship of total dependence. Drop everything you know and you count on for me and me alone. It's the same thing Jesus does, right? What does Jesus say to his disciples? Come follow me. They drop the work they're doing. Come follow me. Leave your family. They might reject you. Come follow me. Take up your cross. Be willing to die to yourself. Follow me. To the rich ruler, take everything that you have, sell it, give it to the poor, and come follow me. Now, most of us struggle because we want Jesus on our own terms on some level. I want Jesus for 60 minutes on a Sunday. Don't push it to 75 or 90. I want Jesus to make me a better person. Not a fanatic like some of those people, though. I want Jesus to shape my temper or help me to deal with my insecurities. But I don't want him anywhere near my bank account or my sex life or my career choices. But the calling of God into our lives is a call to abandon everything that becomes central to us that is not him. Miroslav Volf goes on to talk about Abraham's calling when he says to respond to the call of God means to make an exodus, to become a stranger. And then he talks about this. Christians can never be, first of all, Asians or Americans, or you could fill it in. And then Christians. At the very core of Christian identity lies an all-encompassing change of loyalty from a given culture with its idols to the God of all cultures. Departure is part and parcel of Christian identity. The call of God in each of our lives is first and always go from. Go from. But it's also always followed with God's promise, God's promise of blessing. We get that in verse 2, as God says to, to Abram, Go from your father's house to the land I will show you. And verse 2, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. A blessing of a name and a nation. In the ancient Near Eastern world, God is speaking his love language. I will make you wealthy and I will give you children. Land and children were what, it was, what, what was meant by an ancient Near Eastern person thinking of blessing. But the funny thing is, as the blessing continues to unfold, not only in Abraham's life, but in Israel's life, and as it then comes through the prophets, if Israel is attuned to what God is doing, they realize that blessing has a lot less to do with land and children and a whole lot more to do with God being present with you. God's saying to Abram, I will bless you, 
is God making the promise, I will never leave you. I will be with you, Abram. You know, we tend to pray for uh, help in a job interview, help in a test, healing when we're sick, and we're thinking of it as God blessing us or our situation. But if this understanding of blessing is right, what we need to be praying for first and most is God to be with us. Many of you heard the testimony that my friend Brian Berry gave two years ago on Easter when he shared about being in great fear because of his cancer and how God spoke to him saying, my son, my son. That assurance of God that I am with you. I will not leave you. And Brian, even as his body was breaking down from cancer, said, I would not change God with me for anything. The story of the Bible is the story of God pursuing a people to be with him, to go from their home, from what they're counting on, in order to experience him and his presence. It's the root of the gospel. Jesus comes as Emmanuel, God with us, so that we can be with God once again. That's the promise of God to Abram. I will bless you, meaning I will never leave you. I will be with you. But God's call is undergirded by the promise to bless and be with Abraham, but for a reason. I will be with you, meaning I will bless you, I will be with you, in order that everyone else in the world might be blessed. We get this in the second portion of verse 2 and in the bottom of verse 3. Why is God blessing, calling and blessing Abraham? So that you will be a blessing, it's implied to others. In verse 3, it's, in you all the families, all the kin and clan of the earth shall be blessed. This is then affirmed chapters later, several times in Genesis, but in Genesis 22, after Abraham is willing to sacrifice his only son Isaac, and God provides a ram as a way of salvation so that he doesn't have to sacrifice his son, God says, in your offspring shall all nations be blessed. It's basically a repetition of the same theme. God has called Abraham and promised to bless him so that the blessing of God might flow out to the nations. And let's take a minute to think about what that means or understand a little bit more. The word the nations is actually, there's a good Hebrew word there, goyim. If, if you know your Yiddishisms, that's basically a Gentile, okay? The goy is a nation, goyim is nations, it's translated in the Greek as ethne, which we get ethnicities from. God is blessing Abraham so that through him, all the goyim, all the ethne, all the people groups of the world will be blessed. And who are the ethne and the goyim? It's basically, if you want to translate it today, it's everyone who's not us. Anyone who doesn't look like you. In that ancient world, 
foreigners were even more foreign than many of us think of them today. We mentioned that there was very little movement. Generations of local and ethnic ties existed, and there was very little awareness of other cultures. You didn't turn on the Discovery Channel. They didn't even have the, the, the yellow-covered National Geographic magazine. There was no way to really know the world beyond the place where you lived. On top of that, clan and kin were necessary for survival, and other nations were considered a threat. You were either conquering them or you were trying to repel them. Foreign places were dangerous. Every ethnicity, every people group in that ancient world had cultural practices, ways of living and surviving. And at the core of it was their whole belief system, why we are here, what my life is meant to be about. And it was all built around their national gods, their idols that protected them from the other peoples. Nations in the ancient Near East were closed off to outsiders and foreigners. But Yahweh, the God of the Bible, calls Abram so that through him, God can bless the goyim, the ethne, all peoples. So what gets in the way of us, for instance, being a blessing to the goyim, the ethne, other people? What gets in the way is we don't like them. Now, part of that is implicit bias. Every human being that's ever existed has implicit biases. These are assumptions about what is normative and what is right. For example, we have assumptions in North America about time that are very different than the assumptions about time in East Africa. I've mentioned this before, but if you are getting together with a friend of yours, for dinner in America, you will set a time in a day. Next Tuesday at 6 o'clock, I'll see you. The expectation is within five minutes of 6 o'clock, they will be present. And somewhere around 8, they will be seeing themselves out the door. In East Africa, if you run into somebody in the marketplace who's a friend of yours, you might say, hey, I'd love to have you over for dinner sometime. And the friend would say, great, I'll come. Sometime in the following month, they will show up with some amount of their family. A meal will be served that will probably not have an official end time, and you will be grateful that they're present and show them extreme hospitality because both cultures do things differently, right, and have assumptions about what's most important. In North America, we have assumptions about productivity being most important. In East Africa, you could argue it's relationship, and it's going to affect when we think something should start, and when it is normative for it to end. But these are cultural preferences. They're norms that are implicit and assumed that can cause us to devalue those who don't do it the same way. Implicit bias gets in the way of us loving the nations. But of course, so does sin and unbelief. Love of self is our number one motivator. And on top of that, because of unbelief, we often lack the assurance that we are loved, that we matter. And so every other person, 
even those that are like us, every other person ends up being somebody that we're competing with in order to be liked, to get to the top, or they're a commodity. We use them to feel loved, to be assured of our identity. And even if we're not using or competing with people, at, at, its, at our very root, I know this to be true in my life, I'm too busy thinking about myself to worry about people not like me. Who can be concerned with a goyim when I've got me? That's a lot to think about. But God's purpose for Abram, and then his calling to Israel, was ultimately to fulfill Adam and Eve's original calling in the garden. Before the fall, God tells Adam and Eve he would be with them and be their God so that they could fill the earth with his presence. Abram and Israel's calling was just that, that through them, God's presence with them would reveal to the nations the one true God. And that as Isaiah prophesies, one day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. In Isaiah 49, 6, we get it more explicitly. As the Lord calls on Israel, his servant, he says, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That was Israel's calling. But Israel, God's servant, never fulfills the calling. By the first century, Israel was a closed-off community with law upon law trying to keep the Gentiles at bay, making sure they would not be contaminated. Israel does not fulfill its calling. None of us do. But of course, as you know, Jesus does. Jesus fulfills this calling in his very life. From the Roman centurion to the Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus is pushing outside of the boundaries of Israel and saying, what I have come to do is not just for one people group. We see it most explicitly in an interaction with a woman that's called the Syrophoenician in one translation and a Canaanite in another. Basically, she was a foreign foreigner, if you know what I mean. And she comes to Jesus when he's at a dinner table and says, would you heal my daughter? And Jesus responds with something that sounds absolutely horrible. He says, I have come for the lost sheep of Israel. Should I take the bread from the children and give it to the dogs? Is Jesus calling this woman a dog? You know what he's doing? He's setting up his disciples, all of whom think she is a dog. He's using language that they assume, and they talk about in their own circles. You know, the Canaanite dogs. You don't give them the good stuff. But the woman has great faith. Jesus, even if the crumbs fall from your table, even if you just give me the leftovers of your power and presence, I know my daughter will be healed. And he turns the tables on the disciples when he says, she is healed. This woman has great faith. This is what I'm talking about. The gospel and God's presence comes to whoever will trust in him. It doesn't matter what ethnicity they are. Jesus goes on, of course, 
not just in his life, but in his death, to bring the presence of God to the entire world. In Romans and in 2 Corinthians, we get that Jesus came to die for all people, reconciling us to God. He was driven out so that we can be brought near. He experienced apartness from God so that we could return to Eden. And then we get this. Before he ascends, Jesus telling us he's not just Emmanuel, God with us for 30-some years, but even as he is ascending, he says, I will be with you always. I am sending my spirit to take up residence in you. If your faith is in Christ crucified and risen, God is with you always. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. I am with you. My presence is with you so that you can go and bring my presence to all peoples. Paul, the ambassador to the Gentiles, called us. He said, we are, in 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Be reconciled. As Christ comes, and through him the gospel comes, the disciples are compelled to go out to the nations. My observation is this. Upward connection results in outward focus. The more you are connected to God and experience His presence, the more you are actually driven out of yourself and towards loving care for others. If you struggle pushing outside of yourself, caring for others, you're probably lacking the withness from God. God withness cannot be contained by you alone. It will push out of you. Okay, how do we apply this? How might Abraham's call and the gospel itself, its call for us to be a blessing to the nations, move us forward, push us a little bit? Well, as one area to focus on, because this is Martin Luther King weekend, how about race in America? Past couple of years have seen Ferguson and Baltimore and Dallas and movements in response to that. And if we are called as believers to the goyim, and I look like I do, then I have to think of who is not like me. And there is a call in the movement to the nations and to others to be a people who are concerned with racial reconciliation. My challenge in this is that I live a lot indifferent to the whole thing. I can write it off because I know I'm not a Jim Crow racist, but deep down in, I th probably think it's not my problem. It's not my issue. It's in their neighborhood, not mine. While he was in jail, arrested for protesting, Martin Luther King got a censure 
from a group of white clergy in the South for his protests. He was deeply hurt by this, and he wrote, I have been gravely disappointed with with the white moderate, and he's talking about church leaders. I have almost reached the conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in the stride toward freedom is not the KKK, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Indifference and lack of understanding. That has definitely been a place that I've walked in. And I have to ask the question, do I have implicit racial bias? The answer is yes. How does it come out? Think about something like this. What is normative for a person to wear? How is it normative for a person to talk? Are you more thrown by by black slang than by rural white slang? They both have a way of talking that isn't me. But which one throws me more? Do I have implicit racial bias? What might my assumption be if I'm walking down the street and there's a group of black teenagers hanging out on the corner versus a group of white teenagers or Asian teenagers or Latino teenagers? In each one, I'm going to have a different response. In October of 2015, a man was seen with a bar pressing on the outside window of his car. He climbed into the car and drove off. A woman saw it, calls 911, says, I think I just saw a break-in. She followed the car, waiting for the police to arrive. The man was arrested and physically manhandled. Even as he was saying, it's my car. I bought it in January, nine months ago. Lawrence Crosby was a PhD in civil engineering student at Northwestern University. He was fixing the rubber stripping on his car. He was guilty of driving while black. If the woman had seen a white guy doing that, would she have assumed the same thing? I don't know. Maybe she did what was natural if she saw anyone with some sort of an instrument on the outside of a car. But maybe inside of many of us, there is implicit racial bias. I have two teenage sons, but because of their skin color, I actually don't worry about them getting pulled over by the police. In fact, if they get pulled over by the police, I will probably cheer and say, maybe I'll come get them tomorrow. (laughs) But if I had a black son, 
I don't know that I would have that same confidence or humor. I think I would be dealing with a lot of fear about my boys growing up. And will they make it to 19, 21, 30? Did you know that Corky is over six feet tall? But I'm guessing Corky has never been referred to as a big, scary white dude. (laughs) But there is a trope in television and a way of responding to an over six feet tall black man that is built into many of our psyches. David Bailey, the head of the Arabon Group in Richmond, which is an organization that works for racial reconciliation amongst Christians, says there are three things that are needed to be able to start to bridge the gap. Moving beyond indifference and our lack of understanding requires intentionality because it's hard to connect outside of your culture. This is just all of us. If you look at who's on your texts in your phone, probably everyone is very similar to you in terms of their race, their uh, socioeconomic background, their educational background, what they wear, where they live. So it takes intentionality to push outside of your own ethne. And it also takes vulnerability and the ability to confess to admit your fears and your anger and your hurts, to ask hard questions, to admit your lack of understanding, and to pray and forgive one another. Christians are called to be ambassadors for Christ, seeking the reconciliation of all people to God, which means in some way, in some way, we should probably also be moved a little bit to reconciliation amongst humans. At the root of all of this is the second application that I want to get to, which is we are all called to be externally focused peoples. Our church talks about being a gospel-driven, externally focused, extended family, Anglican mission for Vienna, Virginia. But that part, externally focused, is to me one of the key ones in it. We are to be outward-facing and missional. We want to seek transformation, gospel transformation, not just for ourselves, but for all peoples which means you have to actually be involved in the lives of people outside of your church. And it does mean sharing the good news of Jesus Christ if He is your hope and salvation. And finding the places that are dark and pushing back the effects of sin and darkness with the light of God in this world. Almost every decision we make as a church is built out of this how and why we do kids' classes the way we do, Rod's job description, not just as youth minister, but as missionary to students in Vienna, the song and music choices we make, even how I occasionally explain things we're doing in the service. And it's why we as a church have a a low program for the size of our church. There's not a lot of stuff going on. Why? Because I actually don't want people that are just in the church all the time doing stuff for and with the church. There should be a lot of time for you to be with others, with those who aren't in this church or any church. My heart and passion, because of God's glory and God's grace continually amazing me, is I want everyone else to know this, God. 
My desire and my calling is not to lead a successful church. It's for everyone to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I want everyone I know who is apart from God to experience with Godness. What is our calling? If there is a kind of person that you have a hard time loving or are largely indifferent to because of their race or their politics or their religion or their lifestyle or what they wear or their accent, there's a, hard, a type of person you have a hard time loving, or if you are so concerned with fitting in, with being liked, with matching the culture rather than people being with God, or if you think Christianity in the church is about you and your spiritual blessing and growth and not about those who don't yet know Christ, then it's possible you have not fully responded to the call of God in your life. And I'm pretty sure you haven't fully experienced God with you through Jesus. So answer this as you leave. What is God calling you from? What do you need to leave behind? Don't be afraid. Christ promises what you and I really need, that He will be with us always. His blessing is His presence, but His blessing and presence is never just for you or me. Let's pray. God, our Father, you did not leave us apart from you, cast out of Eden in our sin. You sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to be God with us, to reconcile us to you, that we might be with you forever. By the power of your Spirit, move us outside of ourselves and give us a vision for what you are calling us to individually and as a church community to be your people for the people of this world. In Christ's name, amen.